Beginning in the fall of 1974, through the spring of 1977, I attended law school at the University of Arkansas here in Fayetteville. And a law student's entire grade in every class back then, I think it's still the same, was determined in only one way. There was one evaluative opportunity, and that was a final exam that was three and a half hours long. Back then, you would sit in a classroom with paper and pen and write for three and a half hours about three to four sets of facts that had been given to you to analyze. You're supposed to identify the legal issues and the fact in each fact situation and apply your understanding of the law to the issues like you were an appellate judge writing an opinion. And as each semester would draw to a close, as we got closer and closer to what we described as the day, the day that tension would just keep mounting and mounting. Some people would literally have to go on anxiety medication. And, and they, we'd all, though, get more and more focused and more disciplined, investing more and more time as our studies as we saw the day approaching. The final exam papers were graded anonymously. You didn't even write your name on the paper. You just wrote your ID number. And that one evaluative opportunity was your whole grade for the course. It didn't matter how many classes you'd cut or how many you'd went to. It didn't matter when you were interrogated in class each day, and many of us were every time we went, how well you stood up under pressure. It didn't matter how much legal smack you could talk in the lounge. None of that mattered. Everything was decided on that day. The day revealed everything. A law school exam was truly judgment day for a law student. The quality of your work efforts, how much you invested throughout the semester, it was all determined in that one sitting. Now I realize that's not a perfect metaphor or an allegory for the day that Lee preached about last week from 2 Peter chapter three, but maybe it'll help you a little bit, it helped me some in my understanding. Even Solomon, and uh, he made it somewhat a mess of his life too. Had some addiction issues, I would argue. Even Solomon in Ecclesiastes 12, 13 recognized there would be a day, he said, when all had been heard or all was said and done. There would be an accounting. The New Testament is very clear about this, regardless of whether you're a Jesus follower or not. And I know many of you don't like to think about this, and, and I don't really like to think about it, but I force myself to think about it a lot. There's going to be a day when Jesus is going to say something like this to you. Jim, what did you do with what I gave you? Jesus talked a lot about it. I gave you a certain amount of time, a certain amount of talent, a certain amount of possessions or stuff, a certain amount of influence. And I don't know about you, but I try to live with that question on my mind. And there's a book written by someone, some of you are familiar with it, Stephen Covey. It's an iconic book. It's called Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And Covey says this, we ought to begin each day with the end in mind. And he's not talking about the end of the day. <laughs> he's talking about the day that Lee preached about last week that I'm going to talk about this morning. And I ask myself that question. I have for the last several decades when I get out of bed in the morning, I think about that. I've got to begin with the end in mind. And I try to keep it on the forefront of my mind. Paul puts it another way. He says in 1 Corinthians 3, 12 through 14, that on that day, the quality of each person's life work will be tested by fire, just like Peter says. And the fire is gonna burn up 
some of what's on the altar, so to speak, some of the things that you and I invested our time, talent, possessions, and influence, they're going to burn. And those things that don't burn will have had eternal significance, more significance than we can even imagine. So as we go through our passage in 2 Peter chapter 3 this morning, there's a question we should all be pondering. What am I investing my life resources in today, tomorrow, this week, and the rest of my life? And will it survive the fire that the Old Testament prophets spoke of, that the New Testament writers spoke of, that Jesus spoke of, that is coming on that day? There's another application, a little bit different, but it's related, that Peter's asking from us. He poses it too in the form of a question. So I want to highlight, even before we get to my assigned text this morning, the last eight verses of 2 Peter, how should you and I live? Now he's talking about moral choices and he's talking about habits. He's talking about maybe some things that you and I might want to think about eliminating from our lives in light of that truth about the day. Peter answers that question for us in three different verses. He starts by saying we ought to live holy and godly lives. He ends by saying we ought to grow daily, a kinder way of saying it, in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's emphasizing moral purity and spiritual growth in light of the fact that day will come. So with all that backdrop in mind, open your Bibles if you have them. If not, it'll be on the screen or turn in your Bible app to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 11 through 18. Beginning in verse 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what way? By fire, go back to verse 7. What kind of people ought you to be? What, what kind of people should you and I be? And he answers again. You ought to live holy and godly lives. More on that in a moment. As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. What does speed its coming mean? Well, honestly, no one knows for sure. Uh, there's some passages that were Jesus has said earlier. Uh, Matthew 24, 14 is one of them, where he said we're to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to every tribe, tongue, and nation, and he can't return until that's been done, and that hadn't been done to every ethnic group. And so maybe that's what it's talking about. Obedience to Jesus' teachings means it'll speed up, so to speak, his coming. Maybe. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire. Again, a repeat of verse 7 that Lee preached about. And the elements will melt in the heat. There will be a redo, not by a flood this time, but by fire of the heavens and the earth. But in keeping with his promise, whose promise? Jesus' promise. We're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Now the emphasis is not on judgment. It's on the fact that someday the curse will be lifted. Thank you, Jesus, completely. No devil, no demons, no addictions, no child abuse, no racism. No more wars, no more horrors. Just us and Jesus, the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve, that were meant to live in perfect harmony with their creator forever. Righteousness, that's an incredible, wonderful thought. Verse 14, so then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort. Whoa, Jim. That sounds anti-grace. That sounds like a works-based theology. I don't care what it sounds like. It's in the Bible, okay? 
to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace within. It sounds like it requires effort on my part and yours, and it does. And this is not the only passage like this. It's all over the New Testament. At peace with him means relational peace with God on a day-to-day basis. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation. He's not talking about to you or I. He's talking about his patience in not coming back and not bringing judgment. His forbearance, so to speak, means that more people get brought into the kingdom. His bride expands. Just as our dear brother Paul, now he's going to start talking about Paul, also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. Paul writes about these same things, Peter's saying, about the end of time. I've already given you one of Paul's quotes. He writes the same way in all of his letters, speaking in them of these matters. His letters, this is a sidebar, and I would agree with Peter. His letters contain some things that are really hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do other scriptures to their own destruction. What's he talking about there? All the commentators agree. Paul emphasized over and over again the salvation comes through faith and through the grace of God, not by works. But that doesn't mean he was saying you're supposed to be what I would call a grace trampler. Somebody that says, and I know people like this, God likes to forgive sin and I like to sin and we're a wonderful couple. That's not what the Bible teaches. And that's what these false teachers were teaching in that day apparently. And it was a license to live immoral lifestyles. And there are people like that today. And he said, don't listen to them. The words destruction are related to them. Verse 17, therefore, dear friends, since you have been forewarned by Peter, by Jesus, by Paul, by the other New Testament writers, by the Old Testament writers, be on your guard, military term. It literally means to stand at post. Why? We have an enemy. Please, please (laughs) understand this. Some of you still don't live like this at least. You have an enemy, a real spiritual enemy. Lots of demons, the devil. He has organized forces of evil that are opposing you in his object. He has a plan for your life. Don't buy into his plan, but it requires constant resistance. He has schemes to trap you. It says, be on guard so don't will you not be carried away by the error of just this free libertarian lifestyle that these teachers are teaching of the lawless and fall from your secure position. Jim, are you saying that you can lose your salvation? Here's what I would say. I think it's semantics. You can call me a heretic later, chew me out later, uh, or send me an email, that happens. But here's what I would say. There's other passages that say this. Prove that your election, we don't like that word, is sure by the way you live. That's another way of saying it. Or there are places where it says you'll fall from the position that you think you have. I would argue you never had it to start with, but it doesn't matter. The result is the same. We're supposed to live the ethos of heaven and live the lifestyle of Jesus if we bear his name. If we don't live it continually, it's some indication you really don't know him. Take it for what it's worth, I'll let you decide. So that you may not be carried away by the error and the lawless and fall from your secure position, 
But, and he ends on a kinder note, and I want to end on a kinder note, at least the reading of the passage. But grow, he implores you, in the grace. He knows it's not something where you just all of a sudden break every vice and every bad habit you got the minute you come to Jesus. I've heard, I heard people, I've heard incredible stories of God just taking away addictions, but that's not usually the way it works. Usually it requires a whole lot of effort on our part to participate with the Holy Spirit in a sanctification process that involves getting up and falling down and getting up and falling down. He says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then he ends with praise, to him be glory both now and forever, amen. And he is capable of breaking every chain. Applications. I'll highlight the three, what I would call, do right verses from the passage. And I'm going to get real practical the rest of my time with you this morning. Verse 11. Again, you ought to live holy and godly lives, a Jesus lifestyle. Verse 14. Make every effort. That's your part in this. It requires work and effort to be pure, blameless, and at relational peace with Jesus. And lastly, verse 18. Grow spiritually, daily, in the grace and the knowledge, the relational knowledge. You ought to have a relationship with Jesus. The intellectual knowledge, you ought to know the teachings of Jesus and obey those teachings of our Lord and Savior. Now, most of us don't like the word holy. Oh, as long as we're in a worship experience, we love to call God holy. That's not what I'm talking about. But when we talk about practical righteousness, and holiness on our part or someone else's part, we don't like that word applied to people. It sounds very religious and maybe just a tad bit legalistic. In this context, here's what it means. Set apart for God, morally pure and dedicated to God. For the Christian, it means a life relatively free of vices or at least fighting and and not being like some I'm a fisherman, okay? Some dead fish floating downstream. It means swimming against the current. It applies to someone who invests their resources in things that matter and the will not up. to use today's illustration of the text, that have eternal significance or simply someone who is trying to live and it's serious about a Jesus lifestyle. I want to revisit a quote that Kevin put up a few weeks ago. It's from Dr. Richard Foster. It goes like this. Many today have a practical theology that simply will not allow for spiritual growth. They have been saved by grace, and these individuals are now paralyzed by it. For them, any attempt to make progress in their spiritual life smacks of works righteousness. They've concluded that sin is their fate until they die. Heaven is their only release from this world of sin and rebellion. Hence, these well-meaning folks sit in a church pew year after year. Oh, no, wait a minute. Let's don't let ourselves off the hook. Are in chairs in a gym without a millimeter of movement forward in their spiritual life. I hope that's not your theology. All right, I'm going to tell you the story about me. At the risk of sounding a little bit Holy, but there's enough in this that I, you won't conclude that, I assure you. I got serious about following Jesus at the death of my father in May of 1974. Most of you have heard my testimony. I won't revisit it. I was 22 years old then, and I was about to get married and start a law school that August. 
I had spent my four years of college basically playing, pursuing a hedonistic lifestyle. I had developed a whole lot of really bad habits in those four years, and I knew that I had to make significant changes after God got my attention, and he got it in a big way. If I was going to be successful in marriage, and if I was going to raise a family and become a serious disciple of Jesus, and at that point, I really wanted all those things in my life. Jesus promises something. If we pursue him with all our hearts, he promises to be found by us. And that was my experience. I began to make every effort, as Peter said, to embrace a godly lifestyle. And with the help of his spirit, I began to grow and mature some. I started to engage at some level in all the seven life habits I shared with you a few weeks ago. If you can't remember, don't worry. I'm going to revisit them this morning in just a moment. I dove into the Bible and the word after a few months. It wasn't immediate. Started to come alive to me. I started attending church regularly. Going to Bible studies and classes and small groups with my wife. I started to develop, a, or trying to develop a prayer life. And it was stop, start, but eventually it caught on. And we started hanging out with Christians, changing our friendships and our relationships. We started tithing. I think that's a big deal. And within a year, we were working with teenagers at church and learning to have faith conversations with Christians and non-Christians. And at first, all this was really hard and difficult for me. It required more discipline than I was used to mustering. But it got easier as time passed, and my life got better, and my marriage flourished, and I just kept trying to do the next right thing while pursuing a deeper relationship with Jesus. And God started showing up in supernatural ways. This is not just some Christian self-help talk. There is a supernatural element to this, but I'm going to emphasize this morning the our part of this, because it's a big deal. Old sin patterns of abusing alcohol, taking pills to study, cutting class, speaking sarcastically about people, and a lot worse things that I'm not going to confess to you this morning. They weren't so easy to shake off. Some of these habits I was able, with God's help, to just walk away from. But breaking some of the enemy's strongholds, and by the way, they are the enemy's strongholds in my life, involved some falling down and some getting up. But I kept getting up. And I kept pursuing a deeper relationship with Jesus. And he graced me with more and more of his presence and his anointing even as time went on. Looking back now, God has brought me a long way. My life is far from perfect, but he's blessed me with significant life changes. And I'm still growing in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, but I can still be a mess at times. My wife, my kids, Lee, some of my other friends can tell you that. But you know what? I am deeply in love with Jesus. And it's a big deal. And I'm committed to following him and finishing strong so that on that day, I won't be ashamed to stand before him. And I long to hear him say to me, don't you? Well done, good job, good and faithful servant. Certainly, there's been plenty of ups and downs in my life the last 45 years. Some of them were caused just by the blows of life. Some of them were caused by other people. But a lot of them were caused by my own stupid, poor choices. 
Let's revisit again those seven life habits that all of us ought to be embracing as Jesus followers. They're pretty much spiritual does. They're the basics. Number one, prayer and worship. On a daily basis, there ought to be prayer and worship habits in your life. Number two, engagement with the word of God in some way on a daily basis. Lee uses a two-year go-through-the-Bible approach. Uh, others have other approaches. You can get... Uh, devotional books that send you to, I've got one, that sends you to a different passage of scripture every day after the Devo. Meeting together, number three, with other Christians regularly in large group and in small groups. I applaud you for being here this morning. Number four, giving. I mentioned tithing. Tithing preceded the law of Moses, by the way. <laughs> Abraham did it. It was also part of the law that God gave Moses, giving 10% of your income to God's causes. It was mentioned by Jesus too, granted just one time, as a good practice. And you know what? It's been a basic standard for Christian giving for 2,000 years. It's a great place to start. I highly recommend it. God will bless you for it, I promise. Number five, serving the body of Christ in some way. Number six, faith sharing. I, if, if you struggle with this, and most people do, let some of the tension off yourself. It's not up to you to bring anyone to Christ, to pray or print or say prayer or even to get them to be baptized. It's up to the Holy Spirit, okay? It's up to him. But he wants you to be naturally supernatural. He wants you to learn how to have conversations with total strangers about spiritual things. I could tell you story after story of the impact that this little training that's coming up November 22nd, 23rd has had on my life. I had a powerful God encounter. Pam and I did. I'm tempted to tell the story, but it would take five minutes. We don't have it. In a restaurant just a few weeks ago because I learned some basic things, some tips about saying to the waiter, I got it from salt and light. Hey, we're going to say a prayer over our meal in a few minutes. Is there something we could pray for you about? Just one little tip or something you can start doing. If that's too much for you, there's other things. But take the class that I wish everybody at the church would take the salt and light training, November 22nd, 23rd. And then number seven, I know this intimidates a lot of you, disciple making. Investing in some way in helping someone grow in their faith. The purpose of embracing these seven life habits is to help you become a serious disciple of Jesus Christ. 1 John 2.6 says this, whoever claims to be in Christ, to bear his name, to be a Christ follower, must live as Jesus did. Now that doesn't mean you've got to be an itinerant Jewish rabbi who doesn't sin, okay? You're not gonna make that. But you ought to know the principles of Jesus' teaching and be trying to apply them to your life. I wanna get practical, even more practical from here on. I'm going to talk about habits. I'm going to get nerdy and scientific with you, but it's a practical nerdiness, I promise. I'll start with a poem before I get nerdy, one we had on the screen a few weeks ago by Ralph Waldo Anderson. Most of you know it. Sow a thought. Now, I know these are agrarian terms. Most of us don't, don't do a lot of sowing and reaping unless you garden. Sow means to plant, to water, to tend. Sow a thought. Dwell on the same thought over and over and over for the next few weeks or few months, ultimately it will result in some kind of action or some kind of behavior on your part. And as you start to practice that behavior, so in action, it becomes a habit, good or bad. 
And it's, you develop habits in your life. It reflects on your character. What are you known for? You're known by the things you do, that people know that you do. What's your habits? You have a character and your character determines your destiny. Now, the nerdy part, the science of habits. This is relatively new. It's about the last 25 years or so, scientists have learned a lot more about the brain. They tell us that as we age, we develop something called neural pathways in our brain, which become deeply embedded. They're formed by routines and life habits or behavior patterns. Big 10 cent scientific word, a neuropsychological word or neurophysiology word. It's called neuroplasticity. 30 or 40 years ago, they thought the brain did not have this capacity. Now they know it does. It's the ability of the brain to literally change its structures and its functions by developing new neural pathways and shrinking old ones in response to behavior change and experiences. You can literally force your brain to work in ways that it's not accustomed to working and develop new neurons strong enough to connect with existing neurons and form new neural pathways in your brain. This is essential to developing new habits, again, either good or bad. Then deliberate repetition and practice is the next step to, quote, burn these habits into your brain. It may take three weeks to six months for a new complex system of neural pathways to fully develop and old pathways to erode, depending on how complex the behavior is and how deeply embedded the old behavior was. So if you're trying to break a habit, take heart, but understand (laughs) you're fighting your body. It's hard work, it's uphill climbing. If you're trying to significantly modify behavior net pattern, you're gonna need to develop a plan in advance that provides an escape route for when a new trigger or an old trigger pops up that generally produces the behavior you want to eliminate, you've gotta have a plan as to what to do. Now, here's some practical spiritual suggestions. Start by praying, and I would encourage you to start praying right now. And write down some habits. You don't have to write them down right now. It might embarrass you uh, with your wife sitting there or your husband sitting there or your friend sitting there, but write them down this week. Ask God what habits he wants you to eliminate from your life. Second suggestion, pray and ask him what triggers these bad habits and what you can do when that trigger pops up. Then pray again and ask God, what new life habits he wants you to begin to develop. I was on a seven kick this week, so now I've got a new list of seven. It's my last one, there's no more. Here's seven marks of a Jesus disciple, seven attributes of a Jesus disciple. Probably you could come up with 10 or 15, but the seven is such a good religious number, I stuck with it, okay? This is what holiness or practical righteousness looks like in a person's life. And these seven life habits are meant to produce these character qualities in your life. Number one, above all things, above all things, above all things, a passionate love for God and for Jesus, a deep personal relationship with Jesus. Matthew 22, 36 through 38, one of many passages that just describes the first commandment. 
Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. It's above all the other commandments. Number two, secure in your identity as a child of God. There ought to be some sense at least of security in your salvation, that you belong to him, that the DNA of God is in you and that you're his child. A lot of New Testament passages, John 1, 12 through 13, 1 John 3, 19. Go take that class that pops up this Wednesday. It's in your bulletin, the Father Heart of God. It's all about this identity thing. Number three, a working knowledge of Jesus' teachings. Matthew 28, 19 through 19 and 20, the Great Commission. How do we make disciples? We baptize them and we teach them the commands of Jesus. It's simple as that. You ought to know the commands of Christ, the way he lived and what he taught and be applying them to your daily life. Number four, some degree of moral purity and integrity. Lots of passages in the New Testament. Here's a couple. 1 Peter 1, 14 and 15. Philippians 2, 15. If you're a list maker and you want to check off some lists, I don't necessarily recommend this, but some of us are like this. Galatians 5, 19 through 23. There's two lists there. One of them's a to-don't list. It's the fruits of the flesh. The other one's a to-do list. It's the fruits of the spirit. It's not all the fruits of the flesh and it's not all the fruits of the spirit, but it's some. It's a good place to start. Check the list. Number five, love other people. We preach this a lot around here. You'll see this modeled here in just a few minutes by some guys on the stage. Love other people in real and tangible ways. The story of the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, 25 through 37. Number six, the fuzzier part of this. <laughs> Be spirit-filled and spirit-led. Galatians 5, 16 through 26. What do I mean? I've told you a habit I've got. I would, it, I would recommend it to everyone. Get down on your knees. I do it on the stairs in my house every morning. I lift up my hands to heaven. Now, I do a couple things. I'm not there for more than a minute, maybe two minutes sometimes. But one of the things that I do is... Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit today and let me be tuned into your Spirit's voice and learn to hear the Spirit's voice and respond to the Spirit. As if you really believe this is a supernatural thing and you can connect to the most powerful being in the universe. The wind is still blowing. It's blowing just like it blew in the first century. There is power, supernatural power in the spirit of the living God. And you can tap into that power and pray each day. I know you've got the Holy Spirit. I'm not talking theology necessarily. But pray to be filled with that spirit moment by moment, day by day. And I promise he will respond. And lastly, <laughs> and I threw them all in at number seven, embrace and practice the seven life habits that I gave you earlier. Snuck that in there. You may be thinking those seven attributes sent a little unattainable. Maybe rather than inspiring you to pursue God, you're drowning in them right now. You're going, there's no way I'm completely overwhelmed. It's all about growing. It's all about growing. Baby steps, if you would. None of us have arrived. I spend, I meet, here's an example of something in my life, a structure in my life that's trying to help me and some other people grow spiritually. Here's an example. I meet most Thursday mornings at 6.30 in the morning 
at my kitchen table after I've cooked breakfast for them with a group of seven young men that they too are committed uh, along with me to growing in the grace and knowledge of their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I call it affectionately my millennial discipleship breakfast. Their names are Will, Kenny, Grant, Kelton, Hunter, Cummel, and Michael. In a few minutes, most of them will be back there at the table, time to take some of your money. We eat, we study the Bible, we pray for each other, and we share. But growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is about more than just eating and studying the Word and sharing together. Those are important, but there's more to it than that. As we grow in our faith, we call on Jesus to do good proactively. One of the young men, Kamal, is from northern India. And he's married to one of our former global workers, Carrie Fish. That's his picture right there in Carrie's. And he has a brother named Bobby. If we can pull up Bobby's picture now, and his wife, Anu, and their two children. And they still live in northern India in a town called Derudun. And they have a ministry. They, too, are trying to grow in their faith. I could tell you the story of how Kamal came to Christ, how his brother came to Christ, but we don't have time this morning. On the other side of the world, they're trying to grow in Christ, and they're trying to do proactive goodness. And they've got a ministry to children of prostitutes. And in 2009, God gave Anu a vision that led her and Bobby with the help of a Russian church, and Russian churches don't have any money. They're not like American churches. But they built a home for girls whose mothers are prostitutes in order to save the girls from prostitution. Currently, there are 26 girls that... Bobby and Anu care for personally. Now they're trying to build a home for boys, also children of prostitutes, that will house 50. They're part of the way done. They need some more money. They're already caring for 20 boys in a rented home, but it's in reached capacity. Bobby and Anu feed, clothe, disciple, and help educate. Their kids go to public schools, but they help them. Two have already gone to college. Several are in trade schools. Our little Thursday morning discipleship group, because we have a connection to them, is a group to try to help them. So I want Cummel and Michael, who are heading up this project, to come on up here and tell you a little more about it and give you a chance, if you'd like, to participate. And particularly, even before Michael says it, I want to highly recommend this to this side of the room. If you're under 35 in the crowd... You can give two. This is an opportunity. Yeah, he's a, he's a fundraiser. So if you're old, you can still write checks too. But I want to recommend it to you. And so they're going to tell you more about it and what's going on and uh, why we're doing this. Thank you, Jim. And thanks for the lead in. So my name is Michael Eisman. Uh, and uh, my wife and I got married this summer. And as we have been combining our lives, one important thing to combine, especially when you're marrying a CPA, is finances. And so something, you know, we've had a lot of combination or a lot of uh, conversations about. Um, what giving looks like as well as spending and saving and investing. And as we had our conversation about giving, uh, we didn't really reach a fixed endpoint. And five days later, I'm having breakfast with Kamal and Jim and, and heard something really compelling. So Kamal, do you want to just start with sharing what you shared with our group that morning? Yeah, I share with them like, uh, because I came in my heart to pray for my brother and I tell to them to be pray for them. And Already Jim told you that they have like a 20 boys and 26 girls from the all from red light area, but they're trying to be help them to grow in the God and faithfully. And I explained to everything to in my Thursday morning and help trying to say them to pray for them. And they come up with that things and Michael will tell everything. 
Thanks, couple. So afterwards, we asked uh, a lot of questions, and eventually, Cumble connected Megan and I with Bobby and Anu, and and we learned a lot about what they, well, why we were all compelled to give. Uh, first, in 2009, where she had this vision where she could help uh, save these children from the red light district, and the work from 2009 to 2011 to start the first home, and then it was so successful. These these women, they trusted. Uh, his family and began to give boys to them as well. And there was, you know, they legally were not able to keep the boys and girls in the same home. So in the matter of a month, they were basically met another benefactor who helped them open this home for the boys. And they've grown that to, to 20 now as well. They also shared a lot of stories of how difficult it was. Comments that a new would here as she walked through the red light district to build trust with these women, uh, just the awful condition that the children were living in. And something that really stood out to us was that, you know, these young boys that are living in this home, the role models that they had, not only did they not have a, a father in the picture and their mother was clearly in a, a difficult situation, but the men that they had in their lives were the men who were visiting the red light district. And so this home is really a, a place that they can have a sense of purpose and a sense of family that they wouldn't be able to have uh, otherwise. And so, uh, you know, we also heard a lot of stories about how they were connected with people who, who gave to them. And now we have an opportunity to be a part of that story. So our, our little millennial group uh, pulled together a couple thousand dollars, but the goal is $15,000. And where they are now, they have 20 boys in this home. They're at capacity. And a lot of their sustaining support is going towards rent payments. Uh, they've been given land and they started construction on this home and they have uh, it's $15,000 will allow them to complete this phase of construction. They can move into the house and their sustaining support can then help them scale up to 50 boys in this, uh, in this home. And so I would ask all of you to really consider giving today and, and whether that's uh, $10 or $1,000, just really consider uh, the work that we can have an incredible impact halfway around the, the globe. And so specifically to our high school and our college students, uh, Jim talks a lot about habits and it's a lot easier to start small with habits. So if you have $1,000, it's a lot easier to start with $10 than if you're trying to start giving $1,000 or $10,000 when you have 100000 to give. So I would encourage each of you uh, to, to really consider giving. Uh, there's three different ways. You can give online, you can give through the, the app, and then also our, our group will be back there at the table. Uh, but thank you for this opportunity. Uh, and I encourage you to give today. Uh, I think we can raise this $15,000 today. And if you're like me and maybe think, oh, that's, that's great, we could really help them and we should give X amount of money. Uh, as soon as you walk out the door, you're probably thinking about lunch or how Patrick Mahomes is going to do his first week back from the entry reserve for the Kansas City Chiefs. <laughs> and it, it, you just forget. And, and that's, uh, but giving is a really incredible, it, it, it's a, a gift to the giver as well. Uh, and if, if you disagree, try to think of any time where you've given to someone in need or a really noble cause and, uh, and you really felt bad about it afterwards. So uh, <laughs> please, please consider, you can, you can give to us back there. And we're happy to, to share more about the operation. But Jim, thanks for the, the opportunity. Right. Let's give him a hand. This is just a one-day fundraiser. Summary. Someday, most of the things around you and I that seem so real and tangible and important right now are going to burn up. On that day, it won't matter much where you used to work, what you had for dinner last week, how many followers you had on social media, what kind of car you drive, how big your house is, or even what your friends think about you. 
or where you went on vacation. But there are things that you can invest in. People that will have eternal significance and that will not burn up. And again, I don't want you to think of this as some Christian self-help message. I know there's incredible power in Jesus' blood and he can break every change, but we have a part to play ourselves. I can tell you story after story. I heard a powerful story this week of life change, of a young woman with 17 years in a homosexual lifestyle and an eight-year relationship that broke out of it. Part of it was supernatural. Part of it was her part. She had a part to play. She's been out of that lifestyle for five years. It was an incredible, motivating, powerful story of life change. There's all kinds of stories in this room. But usually, almost every time, we have a part to play. What needs to change in your life today to put you on a better spiritual trajectory that will carry you closer and closer to Jesus each day? What relationships need to change? What vices need to be eliminated? What new habits do you need to embrace? What spending habits need to change? I'm going to close with a simple line for an old Christian song. It's kind of cheesy. You've heard me quote it before. Most of you know it. It goes like this. Someday Jesus is going to call my name. Days go by. You won't stay the same. You're changing every day one way or the other. I want to get so close to him. There's no big change on that day when Jesus calls my name. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for your word. It's powerful. It has the ability to to tear us asunder. It causes us to change priorities in our life, to change our lifestyle. Do that, Father. Do that in a positive way for people in this room, this morning, this week. As a result of them hearing your word. Lord, we love you. We confess the truth that you are able to break every chain. Do it in our lives. I ask it in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.